welcome to the Hermeneutics Podcast. I'm your host, Naam O'Brien, and this is the program dedicated to the art and science of biblical interpretation. On today's episode, we have more of my interview with Dr. Craig Carter, author of the excellent book entitled Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, Recovering the Genius of Pre-Modern Exegesis. Now, at the time of the recording, Dr. Carter was professor of theology at Tyndale University and Seminary in Toronto, Ontario. However, Dr. Carter has since retired from teaching, effective December 2020, and was recently appointed research professor of theology. I'd like to thank Dr. Carter for the interview and congratulate him on his recent retirement and new appointment. He's well-deserved. Dr. Carter says that he is now happily focused on several writing projects and ministering in his local church. His new book, entitled Contemplating God with the Great Tradition, Recovering Trinitarian Classical Theism, is due to come out on the 20th of April, so we have that to look forward to next. Now, with that by way of introduction, let's get back to the interview. You mentioned, especially in the first half of the book, um... You use Platonism a lot, and and Christian Platonism specifically. I think you mentioned it even earlier tonight. Um, But I think in the book you did a good job of it, but just to refresh it in my mind, what is the difference between Platonism and Christian Platonism, and how how do you define Christian Platonism uh, in regards to our approach to hermeneutics? Well... Christian Platonism has been the one most controversial uh, topic in the book. This is where people uh, stumble. And um, I think in the end, I'm going to have to write a whole metaphysics book just to explain this, um, because it, it, the, the short explanations just haven't, haven't taken yet. First of all, the term Christian Platonism is a, it's a term that comes out of, of the historiography of philosophy. It's it's a term that is primarily used by scholars descriptively to describe um, what happened in the fifth, fourth, and fifth century A.D. Um, so you you have Greek philosophy beginning with the pre-Socratics and coming through uh, Plato and Aristotle, and then there's a tradition that comes through Middle Platonism and 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 the academics and so on into what is called Neoplatonism. And, and that, that tradition that we call Platonism is the central philosophical tradition in the ancient world. And so other schools of philosophy like the Epicureans and the Atomists and the Stoics um, are not as central as the central stream of Platonism. The church fathers in the fourth century and even before the fourth, even the second, third century, basically agreed with the the central Platonist tradition on a couple of key things. For one thing, they they agreed that there must be something permanent and unchanging that is the cause of this changing world of flux. If if this world of flux is is always changing, you see see an acorn growing into a a twig and into a, a tree and it, and it changes dramatically over the course of its lifespan. A human being goes from being a, a microscopic uh, union of cells in his mother's body to a fetus, to a child, to a man, to an old man, to a dead corpse. So what is it that, that gives continuity in, in the midst of all this change? What, 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 makes, 
what what makes nature you know what makes things reproduce after their kind what what gives unity to the to a creature over its lifespan so that it's john smith all the way from the beginning to the end well the the the, the fathers agreed with the Platonists that, that there must be something, there must be some way in which the individual things in this world participate in a universal, uh, Plato's theory of forms, in, it, something, there must be some way that the unchanging permanent world and this changing world interact. And so it's the, the Platonic idea of universals, of participation, that uh, our nature human nature participates in the universal of human nature. And that explains why human nature is constant. Well, the, the, the church fathers also agreed that there must be an immutable first cause, an eternal, simple, immutable first cause behind this world that causes this world. Now, the, the issue then for the fathers was, okay, if, if such a thing exists, it makes sense to call it God. How does that relate to the God of Israel, Yahweh, the, the God of the Bible? So if you say that, that the God of the Bible is not that immutable first cause of the universe, it looks like the God of the Bible is a secondary thing with a, a bigger God behind it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the God is the transcendent creator, the, the one who has brought everything that is not God into being. So the fathers were driven to identify the God of the Bible with the God of the philosophers. And, um, and so that, that and, 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 and just, to, just, to, just to stress, the reason they were driven to do that was that was the only way they could think of to affirm and assert the absolute sovereignty and transcendence of God. So they, so they did not want to diminish God. They did not want to have Yahweh be like one of the gods in the Greek pantheon. He's not another Zeus or another Apollo. He's not a being among beings. He is somehow the cause of everything, the behind and above and transcendent of everything. Well, um, they ended up they ended up taking this Greek idea of the immutable, simple, per, uh, eternal first cause, self-existent first cause, and they. And they said, this is the transcendent creator of scripture, but he also speaks and acts in history. Now, nobody had ever said that in, nobody had ever done that before, combined those two into one. But the fathers did. That's what I mean by Christian Platonism. For Augustine, uh, the Augustine is basically saying the simple, perfect, eternal, self-existent, first cause of the universe has... Uh, spoken and acted in the history of Israel, culminating in becoming incarnate in Jesus Christ, and that this, this is what we mean by Christian Platonism. It's Platonism because it believes that there's an immutable, simple first cause of this changing world of flux, but it's Christian because it says that simple, immutable first cause is actually the God of the Bible, the Creator God. And this was, um, so Christian Platonism was was that the Platonic tradition after Augustine was basically taken over and, and brought into Christianity. And, and it continues in a Christian form. And, and Augusta Aquinas is uh, more indebted to Augustine than anyone else. And when he integrates the rediscovered manuscripts of Aristotle into his, his Summa in the 13th century, he's continuing in the same kind of 
tradition as Augustine and the earlier fathers were of combining the, um, the God of the philosophers and the God of the Bible. So, so Christian Platonism was just a key moment in, in the development of, of philosophy and theology where Christians basically took over this Platonic idea of God as the as the simple immutable first cause of the universe and said, you know, that's really, that's really Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And, and, uh, and then began to develop Christian theology based uh, going forward in, in such a way as to, um, as to it, it was their way of affirming that God is really transcendent. He's really the creator of everything. There's nothing behind him that's greater than him or that precedes him. He is the ultimate source of all and, and therefore to be worshiped. Um, so that's, that's, that's the argument. So Christian Platonism is not as opposed to Aristotelianism. Christian Platonism is basically just saying that the, the central, some of the central ideas in that Platonic tradition um, are, are incorporated into Christian theology as being compatible with scripture. You know, for, for example, well, I could go on and on, but, but Exodus 3.14 becomes a key text. And, and that's and and the fathers think that what is being said in that text is that God has his existence as part of his essence. Mm -hmm. So um, so the idea there is that 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 he he is unique in that respect. Everything else is uh, everything else in the world um, has has existence in addition to its essence. And so that means it can in principle not exist. Um, it it might exist or not exist, whereas God is the only thing that must exist necessarily by his own essence, and that makes him utterly transcendent and different, and that's why he is the first cause of all things. So, so the Christians did not see this as, as um, going against Scripture in any way. They saw it as a way of, of giving substance and form to what Scripture teaches. I could follow up on that. Uh, it seems that maybe this shows some of the broader lines how we can take these uh, topics on hermeneutics and applying similar things to uh, the doctrine of God. And uh, it seems that implicit in what you're saying, there is a very strong affirmation of natural theology as well in affirming that this God of the philosophers is actually the God of the Bible. Yes, um, but but what but but it's it's complicated because natural theology means um like natural theology can't stay natural what what we've got to do is to uh use the categories developed in scholasticism of general and special revelation and and we 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 can say that we can know certain things about god by general revelation so we can know uh that god exists that he's immutable, eternal, self-existent, perfect, fully actual, pure act, in other words. We can know those things, but we cannot know that he's personal. We cannot know that he speaks, and we cannot know that he reveals himself through the prophets. We cannot know about the incarnation. We cannot know so many of the actual, um, so much of the content of scripture is not knowable by, by natural theology or by general revelation. So we need to have both general revelation and special revelation, but there's even one more step that complicates it slightly further. When you take, when you reason in doing general revelation and you come to certain conclusions about the nature of God, 
in, in one kind of natural theology, you just do that in complete isolation from special revelation, and the two never meet. You just do that natural theology. Uh, that's not what Christians do. Christians do this natural theology. They, they, they reason ab about everything they can about God from general revelation, and then they, they do special revelation. They do exegesis of Scripture, and then they allow this exegesis of Scripture to correct uh, the shortcomings of what they learn from general revelation. Because what we get out of general revelation, the correctness of it is going to depend on, on us with our finite, fallible minds not making mistakes in order to get it right. And plus, there's information we just don't know. Like, the classic example is Thomas Aquinas um, agrees with Aristotle about a lot of things, but one thing he disagrees with him about is Aristotle thinks that the cosmos is eternal. Thomas Aquinas says, no, it had a beginning. How does Thomas Aquinas know it had a beginning? Special revelation. And so it's because of Genesis 1-1 that Thomas corrects Aristotle's understanding of the cosmos as 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 uh, as not being it's not it's it's from Thomas would say you you can't know I mean knowing like starting from where Aristotle started from you can't come to a knowledge by general revelation alone that creation had a beginning and yet it did have a beginning and so it, Aristotle was wrong but it's not like he was being deliberately wrong. It's just that there was a piece of the information that he could have only had by special revelation that needed to go into that. And it's and so creation ex nihilo in the Christian tradition becomes a powerful metaphysical doctrine that has all kinds of implications. And, and, uh, and so you have to combine them. The general and special revelation have to come together. This is what systematic theology is all about. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, you mentioned in your book, you have an excellent section on the, on the history of uh, hermeneutics, um, especially after the Enlightenment. So I was wondering if you would just kind of speak on that a little bit. Um, how has um, the decline, yeah, kind of review the decline of hermeneutical thought after, from, after the Enlightenment? Because that was very telling in the book. Well, the basic problem with the Enlightenment is that the Enlightenment rejects <clears throat> some of the key metaphysical doctrines that were uh, undergirding traditional uh, hermeneutics. And so um, I use the, uh, the, uh, um, the work of Lloyd Gerson, who is a contemporary um, uh, ancient philosophy historian, historian of Greek philosophy. And he talks about Platonism and he, he says that, that he, he, he creates this construct called Ur-Platonism with five points. Each one is expressed negatively. So he says that all Platonists, uh, they may disagree with each other on many, many issues, but they're going to have five things in common at least. They're going to be anti-nominalist, anti-materialist, anti-mechanist, anti-skeptic, and anti-relativist. So all, all forms of Platonism, including Christian Platonism, would share those five antis. They would, they would be against materialism, nominalism, mechanism, and skepticism and relativism. And so 
what I see happening in the Enlightenment, and and by the way, these um, these 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 options like mechanism, materialism, and nominalism were all known in the ancient world. There were there were examples of people advocating these views, and so the 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 Platonists defined themselves over against those people, and and said, you know, we reject your. They said to Democritus, we reject your materialism, and. Um, so what happens in the Enlightenment is the very reverse of what happened in the ancient world. So the Enlightenment sides with the materialists against the Platonists, and it sides with the mechanists against the Platonists, and it sides with the materialists against um, the nominalists against the Platonists. So what you, what you see is the Enlightenment deconstructing the Platonist tradition that the Christian church fathers interacted with in the ancient world. And so the metaphysical framework in which the um, Nicene fathers did their hermeneutics is deconstructed in the Enlightenment. And, and so you, you see uh, the, 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 the rejection of nominalism begins with William of Ockham as, as far back as that, and it becomes dominant by the 16th, 17th century. You, you see mechanism in the rise of early modern science. Uh, Bacon and Newton and so on. You, you see the materialism in the French Enlightenment. And uh, by the time you get to Hume, you begin to see these three things, materialism, mechanism, and, and nominalism, they begin to flower into skepticism. And so Hume, uh, you know, tries to refute the proofs for the existence of God. And he, he denounces the notions like basic metaphysical ideas like causation, and, and, uh, and so on. And then Kant, in, in, in the passage that he describes in the preface to his, um, to his, um, um, his book on uh, the shorter critique, not the critique of pure reason, but the critique of practical reason, he says that Hume awoke him from his dogmatic slumbers. And by that he means that he agrees with Hume that classical metaphysics has been destroyed by the Enlightenment. And so you can't assume classical met metaphysics anymore. And so Kant says you can't know the thing in itself. Now, for the whole Platonist tradition, that's exactly how you do know anything. You, you know what a butterfly is because you learn what the essence of a butterfly is. And once you know what the essence of it is, then you know what all the individual butterflies have in common, and that's just knowledge. And Kant says, well, you can't know the thing in itself. You can't know the nature of a butterfly. All you can know is the individual butterflies and all of their variations. And so, so he tries to re, reconstitute knowledge on a new metaphysical foundation. I think he fails. But, uh, but what, what you see, what happens in the 19th, 20th century is um, everybody assumes, no matter which positive program they develop, pragmatism, existentialism, uh, whatever they, Hegelianism, whatever they're developing as a positive program, negatively, they all assume that classical substance metaphysics is dead and, and buried. So I think the Enlightenment is like turning the clock back to the, um, be, to the days before Plato and Aristotle, basically. Um, in fact, I, I, I think it's... Uh, it is, um, there are some fundamental metaphysical shifts take place. Now, one, another thing that Lloyd Gerson advocates in his writings is he says that the best way to think about Platonism is to oppose it to naturalism. 
that Platonism and naturalism are opposites. Naturalism is the belief that this cosmos is a closed system of cause and effect. It's just a, it's just, it's the totality of reality. There's nothing beyond what you can access with the five senses. So, um, and Platonism, like Christianity says, no, there is something that you, that is beyond what you can access with the five senses. So, so Christianity and Platonism both reject philosophical naturalism, but philosophical naturalism after the enlightenment becomes the, the, the accepted basis of everything else. In fact, philosophical naturalism has so permeated Western thought that it's pretty much dominates the university. And so, uh, so the big debate in the 19th century is, does Christian theology have a place within the university? And, and really the answer depends on whether you can reconceive of the study of theology within a philosophical naturalist perspective. And this is where historical criticism of the Bible comes from. Historical criticism of the Bible is predicated on philosophical naturalism. It's the attempt to study the Bible within a philosophical naturalist metaphysical framework. And my whole book is saying that cannot be done. Because if you do that, you are, you are distorting what the Bible is right from the get-go. Because the Bible purports to be a revelation from God who is transcendent. So the Bible presupposes the very existence of the Bible, what the church confesses about the Bible, presupposes that philosophical naturalism is not true. And so if you try to replace the Bible's own metaphysical belief with, with the metaphysical framework of modernity, what you are doing is you are misinterpreting the Bible from the beginning. You can't help but misinterpret the Bible. And that's why I say that the, that the um, I mean, that's why I think that the modern historical critical approach cannot be uh, modified or, or, or softened or, 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 or somehow brought into alignment with, um, with, with pre-modern hermeneutics. That's why I think there's, a, there's an unbridgeable divide there because you have to, dis before you interpret the Bible, you have to decide what is the Bible? What exactly is this? If this is something that fits within a philosophical naturalist framework, then you can study the human author, authorial intention. You can study the historical context and, and interpret it in its, his, its historical context. But you can't talk about the divine authorial intent, and you can't understand it as a revelation from outside of the cosmos. And so this is why, you know, before we can develop, that's why we need a special hermeneutics. We need a theological hermeneutics. We need a hermeneutics that, that is unique to the Bible. Of course, there will be overlaps. You know, you analyze a, a Greek sentence in, in the Bible in the same way you analyze a Greek sentence in, in a, a non-biblical text. Uh, of course, there's lots of overlap. But there, is, but, but there is something about the Bible that is different than any other book because the Bible is inspired. And that inspiration implicitly affirms a different metaphysical framework from the dominant one in the modern world. So ultimately, metaphysics or hermeneutics depends on metaphysics. And metaphysics depends on your confession of faith. You either believe in a transcendent God or you reject the belief in a transcendent God. 
And that determines what your metaphysics is. You're either a philosophical naturalist or you are not a philosophical naturalist. And then depending on which of those you have, you can either make room for your the for, for divine authorial intent in the meaning of the text, or you can't. And so, uh, so I, I think that modernity, you know, it, to answer your question as briefly, you know, sum up the answer briefly, the, the, the problem with modernity is that it rejects the Bible's own metaphysical framework and therefore will never understand what the Bible means. It will, it will always have to import a foreign meaning into the Bible because the only way, you know, and this is a basic principle in hermeneutics, is you have to interpret a text sympathetically. I mean, you can't just go ramming your own worldview onto the text and expect it to speak to you truthfully. You've got to take the Bible, you've got to take the text's own worldview into account because only then will you understand what it means. Hmm. And even if you do it hypothetically, like even if you don't, believe it yourself. You've got to at least be sympathetic to that worldview. And that's what I see lacking in modern historical criticism, is I just don't see enough empathy or sympathy for the Bible's own metaphysical framework, the, how the Bible, what the Bible thinks it itself is, in other words. Um, that, that has to come through in your interpretation. So why is there so much disdain for pre-modern uh, exegesis. I mean, I think in your book you referenced how um, Hayes and Duvall from Grasping God's Word had some pretty um, shallow comments maybe towards Origen and, and some of the other fathers of how they interpreted. I mean, I, I think I, in seminary, kept hearing a lot of negative comments towards allegory, and um, I, I know you in your book you talk about uh, layers of meaning and stuff like this. So, so how, uh, why do you think they even conservative guys in in evangelicalism today still have an issue with maybe or look down upon the pre-modern exegesis well i guess um i guess it's it's indicative of the of the uh, tension that scholars live in between the academy and the church and they're they're trying to they're trying to um trying to get tenure you know, and they're trying to get journal articles published, and they're trying to to uh, justify the existence of theology as opposed to religious studies in the university, and so they're always trying to um, to have a theory that that appears to be, uh, you know, they'll use words like academically respectable, and and you know that's just weasel words that means. Um, you know, agreeing with the philosophical naturalism that dominates the academy. Um, it, it's not a matter of how academically respectable you are. Thomas Aquinas is fairly academically respectable. You know, um, it's not about it's not about that. It's about it's about what framework governs your theory, and is that framework acceptable within the within the uh, the uh, restrictions and the and the prejudices and the beliefs of the modern university. Modern university prides itself on being open to all points of view, but of course you can't be open to all points of view simultaneously. Um, you, 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 have to, you have to have some kind of, of uh, uh, some kind of conceptual framework in order to, in order to really have it even a debate. And so, 
and so I, I, I guess I'm just saying that the that the evangelical scholars they want to go to university, they want to get PhDs, they want to get tenure, they want to get published, they want to they want to succeed in that world. So they need to develop a theory that works in that context. But then they also have to be preachers and teachers of lay people in the church, and they want to interpret the Bible in a Christian way. And so they've also so they're they're trying to they're trying to to bring those two things together. They're, they're trying to, to, to make it possible to incorporate enough of the academy's concerns into their theory that their theory looks like it belongs in the academy while not alienating the church on the other hand. And, and I, that, that's why, I, and so I think what they, this, this, uh, this ritual, ritualistic, uh, you know, slamming of the church fathers and origin is the main whipping boy um, you know, th this, this is a way of signaling that you are uh, modern and scholarly in your approach, which are code words for you accept um, philosophical naturalism as your framework. So I think that we are, we are tempted to join in that. Um, but uh, all I can say is that the uh, uh, what we basically have here fundamentally is we have intellectual incoherence. That's what my book is trying to expose. That at the end of the day, you cannot put together incommensurable things. You cannot bring together logical contradictions. You cannot believe simultaneously in philosophical naturalism and a transcendent creator. It, it is, at, it, we, you know, we, we try to avoid getting into an actual, we, we try to avoid the confrontation for as long as possible, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't work in the end. Sooner or later, um, you have to, um, you, you have to, you have to, you have, in order to get conceptual clarity and theoretical clarity, you've got to work back to first principles. And, if, and, and that, that is what I think a lot of people would, um, are just, trying very hard to avoid doing. It's just, you know, it, it, it's really interesting. You pick up a, you pick up a book on, on, on I, I remember picking up a commentary in Hebrews and it had, it. I was interested because it had a, a section on the history of interpretation. Hmm. And uh, so I, I went to that, that opening introductory history of interpretation and it started in 1770 something. And, you know, it's like facepalm time. Um, you know, it, it, it seems, um, I under, but I understand that's a lot easier than, than, than coping with the, 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 the incommensurables that arise from, from really dealing with the history of interpretation. Um, but I understand why people do that, but I just find it odd that somebody would think, a Christian would think that history started in the 1770s. <laughs> so... I think my final question, and I, and I can let you go, um, practically for the hearers, um, how, how did the, um, the fathers interpret scripture? Can, I know in your book you use Isaiah 53, but can you maybe give a, just a, a very su a quick summary of maybe how this interpretation takes place and how it's different really than the historical critical method? Okay. Um... So the fundamental interpretive issue for the apostles is who is Jesus Christ? 
is he the one who fulfills the Old Testament? And that's the fundamental issue. When Paul goes into the synagogue in uh, each city that he enters um, and reasons with the Jews, he is basically claiming that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope. And some of them believe him and accept that, and they become the nucleus of the Christian church in that city. And then others reject that, and they become the opposition to the Christian church. So the fundamental issue is, does Jesus fulfill Old Testament prophecy? Does he fulfill the Old Testament hope? The early church was then uh, attempting to read the Old Testament Christologically. And the apostles did that. And they, I believe, are, are models. In the history of interpretation after the apostles, you, you had a, a, you first of all had a movement of of increasingly seeing Old Testament texts in a Christological way. In other words, you had a um, you had levels of meaning where the the Old Testament text was seen as having a, a a meaning in its original context, but then a greater, more Christological meaning in its um, in the the Christological meaning was was added on as another layer of meaning in the text by the in the, but. In the use of allegory, the church began to, to sort of stretch the distance between the, the original human author's historical meaning and the Christological meaning. They, they, they stretched that, that distance. They, they made um, more and more, how would I put it? The, they, they, they made the Christological sense um, they they moved further and further from the original core of human meaning to give a greater and greater uh, Christological sense. And, and by doing that, eventually the relationship between the Christological interpretation and the original human author's meaning got to be so stretched so far and so tenuous that people began to react in, against that and say, you're, you're, you're becoming too subjective. You're just reading Christ into that text. There isn't really a strong connection there. And then there was a, a move back in the other direction. To, and so the Alexandrians are often cited as the allegorists who stretched the meaning to the, to the limit, to the breaking point. And the Antiochians are seen as the ones who go back to the literal historical meaning and, and decry these allegorical layers of meaning at being added on. My understanding of the way the history works is that the church adopts a moderate position between these two extremes. So you've got some of the Antiochians who only see four Psalms that even predict the Messiah. And then you've got other people on the other side who see Christ in every Psalm. The church basically says, you know, we, we need to be careful about not stretching the difference between what we call divine authorial intent, the Christological content of the text. We, we don't want to make that too far. We don't want to pull that too far away from the original historical meaning, but we also don't want to reduce the meaning to nothing but the original historical meaning. And so eventually a balance emerged whereby we begin to understand the Old Testament Christologically, but keeping the Christological meaning as tightly tied to and grounded in the original human author's meaning as possible. And that's where I think the, the, the balance comes. 
So in, in the narrative that I, in the story that I narrate in the, in the book, Calvin turns out to be the hero because he ends up with a, um, with a Christological interpretation that doesn't go too far in the direction of loosening the bonds so loose that, that people say, no, that's not really in the, in the text at all. You're just reading that in. He, he, so he doesn't want to do that. And so he's criticized actually from both sides. There are people who say, you're just a Judaizer. You're just reducing the text to the, nothing but the original author's meaning. But that's not true. He sees Christ in Isaiah 53. Um, so I, I, I think the history of interpretation shows that um, the church can go too far in reading meaning in, and it also can go not far enough. And, and so there's a, there's a general, and, and it's more of an art than a science. And in, you can't, it's hard to generalize beyond these, these, these basic generalizations that I'm making. You really need to go to individual texts. Some, um, uh, one thing that helps uh, me is predictive prophecy. Uh, the church has, has made predictive prophecy has been very important to all, all in all period, all centuries. Um, and if you believe in predictive prophecy, then you probably have a high view of inspiration and a high view of divine authorial intent. And you probably can see how the Old Testament prophet is speaking more truly than he knows by, by what he says. Um, and, and so if you have that, you can probably see Christ in types and Christ in, in, in various other ways in the text as well. Hmm. Okay, well, um, I would, again, for the listeners, the book that we're talking about is Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, Recovering the Genius of Pre-Modern Exegesis. I would highly recommend uh, this book to anyone listening. Uh, Dr. Carter, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. It's been a, a true blessing and pleasure. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>